I hope you're all doing well out there, wherever you are. And you might hear the crickets on my end because it's late evening in the Dominican Republic right now. And I'm here in our little casa in Barbacoa, which is kind of the jungle between Las Arenas and the town of El Limon. And my family and I have been here for almost two months. And we're just a couple of days away now from returning to New Brunswick, Canada. And to be honest, I feel a little heartsick at the thought of leaving this gorgeous, wild, unbounded place. I really feel in so many ways freer than I've ever felt before. And my skin is... I can't quite say tanned, but sort of permanently burnt in a way that I don't mind. (laughs) And I've learned how to drive a scooter after a lifetime of promising everyone around me, including my motorcycle-loving husband, that I would never be so reckless as to ever even consider riding on a two-wheeled motorized vehicle, even as a passenger. And... Just this evening as I was coming home from working in Las Terrenas, um, as I was weaving in and out of traffic and driving admittedly too fast and keeping up with uh, even some of the, the sort of motorcycle taxi drivers that rule the roads here, I was finally thinking to myself, you know, I've kind of made it. I, uh, I finally feel at home on the roads. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I feel changed. Changed and pushed and expanded in every way, not just in the realm of scooter driving, but in all kinds of ways. And I really came here to work on, primarily to work on a big project. And I'm beyond excited about the fact that Emily Saldea, of Free Birth Society, of course, and I will be opening registration for our online Radical Birthkeeper School on March 1st. The Radical Birthkeeper School is a 12-week, immersive, live, mastermind experience that will prepare our students for really a career as a Radical Birthkeeper. The program focuses on four core elements that are really necessary for authentic, holistic birth work, including an in-depth grounding in the holistic physiology, chemistry, and hormonal structure of spontaneous birth, and how and why birth works especially well when it's undisturbed, as well as the art and practice of birth work, how to get clients, how to establish strong client relationships, how to navigate the legalities and practicalities of independent birth work with integrity. And concurrent with that, we're also covering really the sort of ins and outs of how to make a business in birth, whether you're a doula or a midwife already, or if you're just starting out, or if you'd like to focus your business on offering online coaching or courses, this program will guide you through the steps to successfully launch or relaunch your birth business so that it can actually support you and your family sustainably. And tying everything together is 
our module on self-mastery. And I'm so excited about this aspect of the course because it's really so fundamental. So the self-mastery module is grounded in the incredible coaching tools of conscious leadership. So this is a coaching system that was developed by the Institute of Conscious Leadership. But Emily has really pioneered this framework for the birth world. And the results have been really incredible. And uh, the curriculum of the Radical Birth Keeper School is really grounded in the application of these tools for our students in terms of kind of up-leveling their lives, but also translating that to the practice of birth work. And this includes a blueprint for delivering this coaching framework for your own clients, which really is a game changer. So it's just really exciting to be offering such a profoundly relevant education that has this potential to really up-level the work that other birth workers are doing in the space in such a significant way. And we'll really be sharing exactly what Emily and I have done that's made Free Birth Society such a leading voice in autonomous birth to the point that Emily and I are engaging in this work full time and we're supporting our families through birth education, advocacy, and activism with real abundance and quite dramatic uh, effectiveness in the world. And it's just such a privilege and such an honor to have the opportunity to offer this program. And it's also an interesting time to be releasing this course. And I just want to come out and name, I guess, what might be a bit of an elephant in the room. And that's an article that was recently published on the front page of NBC News on the topic of free birth. But it also wasn't really about free birth, per se, this article. It was more the story of the tragic and very sad experience of a mother whose baby died uh, when this mother was 45 weeks pregnant. So the mother is, is kept anonymous in the story, but she had been planning a free birth, and she had also happened to have purchased the Complete Guide to Free Birth, which is the course that I wrote and created with Emily and released through her platform, Free Birth Society. And I should say, first of all, that Emily and I never had any contact whatsoever with this mother who shared her story with NBC. I don't know this woman's real name. I've never spoken with her or had any interaction with her. And I was never in the same groups that she was part of on social media, not to my knowledge anyway. And the Complete Guide to Free Birth, our birth education course, is entirely passive, which which means that anyone can buy access to the course if they choose. And it's all pre-recorded material, so it's not a live experience at all. In essence, when someone buys our course, they have exactly the same sort of involvement with me and Emily and our opinions that one has with an author who's written a book that you might buy. So you consume their ideas and their material through their book through their product and you make of it what you will. I want to remind everyone too that 
there are thousands of online birth education courses available. Some of these courses emphasize the perspective that hospital birth is the only way to go. Others share the perspective that a home birth with a regulated midwife is the best choice. And there are others, like mine and Emily's, that focus on the option that exists to free birth, which means to make the decision to give birth at home in the absence of a trained care provider, which, of course, women have been doing throughout the world since the beginning of humanity, and which is also, incidentally, the way that every other mammal manages to procreate. But really, it's a course that has been of value to many women, no matter their birth path. The focus of the Complete Guide to Free Birth is really just on how physiological birth works, whether you end up free birthing or giving birth at home with a midwife or having a hospital birth. The course is for anyone, and there isn't really any particular slant or you know overt advocacy one way or another um, we're very careful throughout the complete guide to free birth to emphasize the fact that free birth is absolutely not the right choice for everyone and we underline the importance of really contemplating the risks and benefits of any choice we might make in birth we also state over and over again in the course the importance of always seeking medical attention if and when you feel the need or desire to do so, and ultimately the philosophical foundation of the program is the assertion that it is in the end women themselves who have sovereignty over their bodies and their birth choices. But, of course, those weren't the quotes that happened to be shared in the NBC article, which actually did reference certain small aspects of of what we we state in the course material. In my experience, though, no one cares more about the well-being of our children than we do, the mothers. And while I don't know the mother showcased in the NBC article, I have no doubt that she too was doing what she thought best for her baby at the time of her birth process. According to the NBC article as well, in addition to purchasing our birth education class, this mother also apparently spent a lot of time interacting in a variety of birth-related Facebook groups. And for whatever reason, for reasons that no one can possibly speculate on in hindsight, this mother's baby died. And what a terrible, horrific thing that must be to experience. It's really heartbreaking to hear about stillbirth or about babies who die immediately after birth. I can only imagine what it must be like to lose a baby. I've never had that experience myself. I have experienced miscarriage three times, actually. And while some women maintain that any pregnancy loss at any stage is equivalent, I suspect, personally, that experiencing the death of one's baby closer to or at the time of birth is probably much more devastating than an earlier miscarriage. But I also recognize that we can't really claim a hierarchy of loss and that each individual processes and experiences death, however death appears, very differently. And over the past 20 years that I've been giving birth myself and mothering and working in the birth world, many women in my circle have sustained losses of various sorts, including stillbirth, and I've lived through 
loss in lots of different ways as well. One thing that I do understand, I think at least to some degree, is the sense of guilt and shame and second guessing and rage and unbearable sadness that tends to percolate when anyone whom we love dies, especially if we you know, feel that we have any kind of involvement or influence over the circumstances of their death, and that this can and often does translate into the urge to lay blame. And I'm just so, so sorry for this mother. I'm sorry that her baby isn't alive right now in her arms. But I'm also sorry that she was exploited by one of the largest news organizations in the world and exploited in a way that comes across a little bit as an effort to demonize women who dare to make autonomous birth choices. And that this mother's private agony was turned into a spectacle in a way that comes across again as kind of throwing women under the bus who have the temerity to step outside of the industrial framework. So this NBC article, apart from being really appallingly written, I have to say, is presented in a way that, as always seems to be the case when mainstream news organizations cover unconventional birth choices, serves to paint women like me and like so many of the other women that I know who fundamentally advocate for and support total reproductive freedom and free speech, and who believe that every choice in life involves risk of one kind or another as a little bit reckless or crazy and, you know, kind of definitely stupid. (laughs) But what I understand quite intimately myself and through the work that I've been doing for all these years is that death is inevitably and in every context, the shadow side of birth. I also believe that women, as full members of society, and as functional adults, have the capacity to think for ourselves, and that we have the intelligence, and maybe even an obligation, to own and take responsibility for our choices. I've also observed that when it comes to infant loss, there's a distinct double standard in the way that home birth, and free birth, and even natural birth, whatever that means, is received and interpreted as opposed to the way the loss of a baby is treated in the obstetric realm. Because, of course, babies die in hospitals. In fact, according to the most rigorous scientific statistics, babies die at very similar rates in hospital as they do at home. Of course, there are no statistics available on free birth, As we know, by definition, free birth takes place outside of the institution, so those stats just don't exist. But what I've observed from my 20 years of involvement in the natural birth community, the free birth community, is that birth tends in general in North America to be quite safe no matter where babies are born. And yes, this is a huge generalization, but again, it also reflects the available stats. But... At the same time, this is also kind of beside the point, which is that women own birth. And that the function of our female bodies cannot be justifiably regulated, in my view. And birth is a normal biological event. As adult people, women have a right to make our own assessments of safety and risk 
when it comes to our bodies, and especially our genitals, based on our values, which differ from individual to individual. And I really believe this. I stand by this, bar none. But for some, this might resonate as being especially significant in light of the reality that hospital birth is also quite widely recognized, even among those who otherwise embrace and feel secure in the apparent wisdom of allopathic Western medicine as, at the very least, imperfect. And I contend, based on my, again, extensive experiences, witnessing, seeing, speaking to, working with, and listening to women, and based also just on my observations of society in general, that we live in a global culture of human beings overwhelmingly traumatized by industrial obstetric practices. Practices that, by fairly wide admission, are objectively harmful, often at least. So, for example, rates of surgical birth are wildly high at numbers that exponentially exceed medical necessity. And women are increasingly sharing their stories of birth trauma by the millions everywhere, especially in social media and in the activist spaces that Emily and I occupy. We are really inundated by these stories. In fact, the majority of women who choose free birth do so because they have experienced obstetric violence. And babies also die in the hospital. When babies die during hospital birth, however, there are very rarely any news stories because the assumption tends to overwhelmingly be that it's a given that the nurses and doctors did all they could. The very fact that a mother whose baby doesn't make it in the hospital was situated in the clinical realm automatically presupposes that the birth professionals present were doing their due diligence and that what transpired was necessarily a result of circumstances beyond the control of medical personnel. And this is despite, again, statistics from organizations like the Institute of Medicine in the U.S., a very mainstream organization, which report that an estimated 230,000 to 284,000 iatrogenic deaths occur annually. And that's just in the U.S. And iatrogenic, that term for anyone who isn't aware, means harm caused by medical examination or treatment. So doctors are not gods. Doctors are fallible. And there's ample research that's been done, again in the mainstream, that's proven over and over again that standard industrial birth practices often contradict the most current science and evidence regarding optimal birth practices. So to be clear, I'm not saying that doctors kill babies. What I am saying, though, is that anyone who believes that medical professionals have a monopoly on either morality or positive maternal infant health outcomes are ignorant of the facts. I'm also saying that the risk of birth anywhere is death. Sometimes babies die for whatever reason, and absolutely no one not the most acclaimed or highly decorated or certified physician can rightfully know in hindsight whether or not a baby's death was preventable, even if different choices had been made. To ever proclaim that a death was preventable 
is really to feign omniscience, which is maybe the height of arrogance. There are always an infinite number of variables at play, and as human beings, we are always and forever subject to the limitations of life. I'm also deeply motivated by my view of birth as a feminist issue. Birth rights and birth freedom is, I think, the last frontier of feminism, really. And this is a particularly interesting space in which to be working because because what I've noticed is that there are very, very few birth activists who are merging radical feminism with birth work. Yes, there are lots of birth workers who support liberal, individualist, quote-unquote, choice feminist politics. But in my view, individualism is not an effective or just framework for feminist analysis. So many motorcycles. <laughs> and this is really a complicated thing to talk about because on one hand, yes, I absolutely will fight for women's choices. I stand behind total reproductive freedom, but things get really complicated when, as I discuss in a podcast episode that I am about to release on matriarchy, but which is very, very rambly, so I'm feeling a little bit insecure about releasing it, but I think I probably will. Um, anyway, I discuss in that podcast that things get very complicated when one person's rights are in competition with another's. So a good example of this is sexual exploitation or as liberal feminists will call it, sex work, end quote. <laughs> and I'm constantly sent messages or comments from those who are pro, quote, sex work, and who demand to know how I can support women's reproductive choices without supporting their choice to sell sexual access to their bodies. Well, in fact, I actually absolutely do support a woman's right to sell sexual access to her body. But the vast majority of women who are engaged in the sex trade globally are not there willingly and would not be engaged in such quote-unquote work if they had other viable economic options. And this is usually referred to as subsistence sex work. And this overwhelmingly represents the realities of most prostituted women on the planet. It's interesting, though, that so many of the women who become enraged by any discussion of the Nordic model, which is a legal framework um, that's been employed in quite a few northern European countries now, um, with great success, by the way, which criminalizes the purchase of other human beings for the purposes of sexual gratification, yet also at the same time decriminalizes the sale of sex by the women, girls, and of course, smaller numbers of boys and men who are selling sex. So many of the women who write to tell me how terrible the Nordic model is and who call themselves quote-unquote sex workers are often doing relatively low-risk sex work themselves. So they're you know, strippers or cam girls, and it seems to me that they're often quite eager to have others validate their choices as empowered or whatever, and that's fine, you know, go for it. But I will argue forever that consent cannot be bought and that paying money to someone who doesn't even know you so that they'll submit to your putting your penis or fingers or anything else into their vagina or anus or other orifices is not okay and that it is not legitimate work and that the illegitimacy and indignity of this transaction belongs to 
the buyer. And really what the sex work is work rhetoric does is that it sanitizes this practice that is fundamentally exploitative and that it creates a pretense that it's basically just the same thing as sitting in an office or flipping burgers or cleaning toilets. And it's not. I've never sold my body for sex, I admit, but I've had plenty of sex and it's not a commodity. No, it's not always a spiritual union or a romantic experience. I've definitely had terrible, disgusting sex and I've had lame, boring, disconnected sex and I've had sex with people that I don't really want to be having sex with for sure and I have experienced sexual assault, but I can't and won't accept that sex can ever be successfully argued to be work. Again, the burden of responsibility not to cause harm and not to use and dehumanize other people rests on those with power. Wow, there's something going on out there in the road. Ah. So when someone has money and feels entitled to buy the consent of a person who, in the absence of payment, would never otherwise consent to sexual contact with this person, what we have in actuality is paid rape. Consent cannot be bought. Human beings cannot rightfully be bought. It's very simple, right? I mean, it should be so simple. (laughs) So yes, women can absolutely do what they want with their bodies, but no one can rightfully or ethically buy a person's body for sex. And the same goes for surrogacy. I get kind of virtually screamed at all the time by those who have a vested interest in normalizing surrogacy, whether these are women who have acted as surrogates themselves or those who have enlisted other women to use her womb to gestate a baby for them. And you know, I frequently hear that I'm a hypocrite for, on one hand, advocating for a woman's right to choose where, how, and with whom she gives birth, but on the other hand, suggesting that surrogacy is wrong. Well, in fact, I am not arguing that women should be prohibited from doing what they want with their bodies. If a woman wants to become pregnant and then give up her child for adoption, that's entirely her prerogative, and of course people do do this. And yet we don't, as a society, as a global society in fact, I'm pretty sure this is the same all over the world, we don't condone the purchase and sale of newborn babies on the free market. It would be horrifying if a woman gave birth and then put her baby up for sale on Kijiji, or I think it's Craigslist in the US, right? That would be awful, unacceptable. But why? Shouldn't we allow a woman to do whatever she wants with her body? Well, up to a point. Because once a child is born, it's not just her body. This is another situation that kind of describes the the competing rights clashing that I was mentioning before. So in this case, it's the rights of the child that are clearly in competition with the rights of the mother. And it's really interesting to note the reaction that this analogy receives. Usually it's absolute horror. How could anyone accept the idea of selling a baby on Craigslist? How dare you? And I think this is also an analogy that Mary Lou Singleton brings up a lot. But this is not markedly different from surrogacy at all. These are babies who are being separated from the woman whose body they were gestated and born from 
based on an economic transaction. And the fact that many, if not most babies that are manufactured through surrogacy do not share the initial DNA of the mother or the carrier or the, the gestator, this is a foil. It's a diversion and really, I think, an irrelevancy. The fact of the matter is that surrogacy is not just a quote-unquote free choice that some women make out of the goodness of their hearts. Surrogacy cannot happen in the absence of an enormous industrial and economic and medical framework, an industrial, economic, and medical framework that is of financial benefit primarily to the doctors who facilitate the medical aspects of surrogacy, and then the lawyers that write up the elaborate contracts on which surrogacy relationships are based. And crucially, of course, the surrogacy brokerages that incidentally have proliferated all over Canada, which is supposedly a country in which paid surrogacy is illegal, but I think it's obvious that the hundreds of new surrogacy brokers in every province have kind of a nudge-nudge, wink-wink approach to overcoming the barriers to paid surrogacy. And in effect, surrogates in Canada do get paid through the expenses that they are able to claim, which generally accrue to these women a better hourly wage, much, much better hourly wage for a 10-month gestation than working at McDonald's would for 10 months. And hey, they get to stay home while they do this so-called work rather than leave their older children at daycare while they go out to mop floors or what have you. And that is coercion. It's a very complicated form of coercion, but it is coercion nonetheless. So if we accept that reproductive freedom means upholding a woman's reproductive choice in the absence of coercive and really mercenary industrial infrastructures, and that autonomy is valid up to the point that a woman's reproductive freedom impacts or infringes on another person's right to liberty. So, of course, that precludes the right of an infertile woman to buy access to a fertile woman's womb for the purposes of manufacturing a child. I actually think the framework is pretty clear. But liberal feminists, especially those who seem to think that having money makes it right to buy sexual or reproductive access to other women, really don't like to hear this. I am in good company, though, with radical feminists. I've spent quite a few years in radical feminist spaces, and radical feminists and I are in agreement here for the most part. And I consider myself to, uh, not, I don't know if be a radical feminist is right, because I don't really see it as an identity. It's really just a political movement. But, you know, I agree with radical feminist politics. But here's where things get tricky as well. So most radical feminists, sadly, despite their astute critique of patriarchy in almost every area of society, seem to have a massive blind spot when it comes to motherhood and birth. And I've spent way too long arguing against the fantasy of, you know, ideas like so-called mother privilege, which is this notion that mothers enjoy privilege over child-free women which is, as any mother will know, utterly and completely laughable. I mean, like every woman, I was at one point in the past child-free, and I actually often have opportunities to go out into the world without my children, and there is just no comparison whatsoever to the kind of experience that I enjoy when I move through the world without my kids. 
I'm given respect and space and dignity um, and far fewer or often no comments on my physical body. And the difference in my experience of the world when I have even one or two children with me is really quite astonishing. So, you know, perfect strangers constantly approach me to comment on my family planning choices. When my kids are with me, I receive comments on my sexuality, my fertility, the shape of my body. There are drastic assumptions that are kind of made publicly about my family makeup, especially having such a large family. Wow, you know, the judgment, the denigration, the jealousy even, the blame. It's kind of night and day. So mother privilege? No. (laughs) And then, of course, there are all the very real structural challenges and struggles that all mothers experience. So economic barriers, the the astronomical cost of childcare, the disrespect accorded to mothers who choose to work in the home, the judgment and criticism that mothers receive who work outside of the home. I could really go on and on for hours, (laughs) but I won't. I'm going to stop. I'm going to keep going. So mother privilege isn't a thing, but many radical feminists are child-free by choice, and only a few really just a tiny handful of radical feminists have any understanding whatsoever of physiological birth. And of course, this is not like a radical feminist thing. I think this just is a reflection of the larger demographics and in terms of how the general populace views birth. But I really find it interesting that I can speak radical feminism very adeptly and, you know, fit in quite well with radical feminists. But when the topic turns to birth and gosh, in particular free birth, I'm suddenly on my own in the desert, along with, you know, maybe a couple of other rad femme sisters who get this. And it's sort of like, you know, these women can see all the ways that female people, women, are oppressed on the basis of our sex and exploited sexually and reproductively via surrogacy. And, you know, radical feminists pretty much by definition are pro-choice and support a woman's right to abortion, which, by the way, I have a lot of ambivalence about, and I will be recording another podcast at some point about abortion. But radical feminists just don't seem to be able to make the leap and to maintain any consistency when it comes to what must be a woman's right to choose absolutely without constraint all of the circumstances of her birth, including where, how, and with whom she gives birth, even if this means doing it alone in her bathroom with her dog sleeping in the corner. And yes, it's sad and frustrating because ultimately the underlying message and assumption when women themselves do not support complete and total reproductive choice In the absence, of course, of coercion and of a concurrent infringement of another person's right, is that women are not intelligent enough to make choices in our own best interests, which of course includes our fetus in uteri, because a fetus is not legally a person until they're born, they are part of their mother's bodies, and that pregnant women themselves do not hold authoritative knowledge in regards to our own bodies. And I appreciate that most people don't comprehend the physiology of birth or the chemistry that underlies the interdependence of a mother and her baby, but I'm torn as to whether or not that matters here. And again, I think earlier I said I don't really think it does matter. I mean, I think it does to an extent. I think that 
once a person is educated as to how birth actually works and works best in the absence of medical interference generally, they do tend to become more open to the idea of women choosing the circumstances of her birth. But again, when you really think about the implications of this, in a way it's also kind of upsetting. Why should it matter whether or not you understand how birth works before you can appreciate that women have a right to choose? And I wrote in a recent Instagram post, at Bajo's Wife is my, my handle there, that you either support women's reproductive and bodily autonomy, or you don't. And it really is quite, um, it really is as stark as this. And if you do support the killing of a fetus, abortion, and I know this will sound incredibly confronting to most people, but I absolutely do believe that abortion is killing and a form of killing that only a woman herself can arbitrate. Uh, and that's important. And yes, I definitely have to talk more about this in another podcast. But if you do support abortion, then how could you not, by the same token, stand behind the choice a woman might make to give birth to her child any way she chooses, especially when the choice to give birth outside of the medical institution involves such enormous consideration, and a consideration, I would argue, that comes universally and exclusively from love and devotion to her child. And yes, giving birth outside of conventional medical institutions also involves risk, but it's a risk that I would argue is far more social than physical or medical, because, as we know, sometimes babies die. And sometimes babies die at home, and sometimes babies die at the hospital. And I'll say it again, when a baby dies at the hospital, the doctors are almost always assumed to have done everything they could, and insurance covers the rest. When a woman ostensibly takes full responsibility for her birth choices, and makes the decision to give birth at home, or with an unlicensed attendant, or with only her partner or her other older children present, and her baby dies, she's seen immediately as an unfit mother. She's dismissed as irresponsible. She is viewed as having taken undue or unreasonable or reckless risk. And often she's prompted, either overtly or through social pressure, or through the totally understandable force of grief and alienation and desperate sadness to look around for someone to blame, whether that's a Facebook group or an individual doula or a midwife or an online course in birth education that she happened to sign up for during her pregnancy. Or when media suggests that pregnant women are uniquely susceptible to being quote-unquote brainwashed by the ideology of natural childbirth, which is such an incredibly specious reversal, considering the blatant coercion that takes place in the medical realm. Again, the number of stories I've heard from women who've had doctors and midwives ask them outright, do you want your baby to die? When they've asserted even the mildest boundaries is shocking. And these are women whose babies did not die. The tacit assumption again is that women are too delicate too stupid, and too vulnerable to really be trusted to, to have the capacity to navigate a diversity of opinions and ideas about birth. Childbirth. This is that thing that women do 
with our vaginas and our bodies and our beings. This is the biological process that creates human life on earth. So, wow, you know, the magnitude of the kind of bypassing that is so rampant in our culture around birth is pretty shocking. And I'll be honest, it was very strange to experience being named. And I'll be honest that it was very strange to experience being named in this very prominent NBC article, an article that didn't quite go so far as to lay specific blame at my or Emily's feet for the death of this baby, but which created quite the invite for others to do so. And did they ever? Within just a few minutes of the article being published, the hate mail started pouring in, and I'm so grateful to have the kind of tools I have now to deal with that sort of energy. Not just to know enough to block, delete, block, delete, block, delete, etc., and move on, but to be able to spend just, you know, 10 or 15 minutes or so crying and feeling at the effect of it all, when in the past it might have taken me a few days to get over this. And it's also been really helpful to get coaching around the fact that there are literally no women who are making any kind of impact in any area of life who don't receive hatred and denigration. And, of course, and combining impact and activism, especially in the birth freedom space, and especially when one is actually prospering in one's business. Well, there are going to be a lot of bitter, traumatized, and angry people threatened by this kind of success. And this is just part of the territory as a woman growing into wealth and power and influence. It's interesting, too, because anyone who is in birth work knows that there's an often unspoken but sometimes also very blatant script that gets replayed over and over in the birth community that says that women who work in birth don't deserve to make money, and that specifically offering birth education or birth coaching or consulting or even doula work in exchange for money is somehow unethical and inherently dubious. And I think if we push into that concept just a tiny little bit, it's pretty obvious that this comes from misogyny and internalized misogyny. And of course, we know that it really doesn't matter what your detractors think of you. With any kind of success, there are going to be people who dislike you or who think that you're bad and awful, and that by definition, those people are irrelevant. It has to be those individuals for whom your work is valuable that you show up for and give energy to and really no one else, and that any kind of investment in or attention paid to the haters is a direct form of self-sabotage and upper limiting, and this is applicable to any profession. Someone who doesn't like your writing or your design work or your architecture, your academic lecture, they literally cannot matter if you have any intention of creating anything meaningful. Interestingly, the same day the NBC article landed, Emily and I made quite a few sales of the Complete Guide to Free Birth, so maybe it is true to some extent that any publicity is good publicity. I do feel so much regret, though, over how unfortunate it is, again, that a mother's grief was so cruelly and indiscriminately utilized to sell ad space, and that the attention that was brought to our work was in this case so one-sided, despite the many hundreds of women who found value in our course, and in our community, and the many, many thousands of women who have free birthed blissfully. And it's those women, hopefully you listening, that I'm focused on in what I do. 
Anyway, that was quite the roundabout spiel, as always. But I thank you for listening. 